This episode is brought to you by patrons of the Hippie Witch Podcast. Thank you so much to everyone who supports the show over on Patreon. And I'm sending a special shout out to new patrons, Laura, Becca, Sage, Elizabeth, Kate, Brandy, and Drusilla. Thank you, thank you, thank you. Thank you for helping to keep the lights on and the podcast rolling. I hope that you are enjoying all of the bonus content over there. I hesitate to say bonus because I create more content over there than I do here. And that's actually become my home base because I like to work for the people who pay my bills. So thank you for being those people. What if Dolly Parton wrote us a theme song? Would it sound like this? Would it sound like this? Peace, love, and all that good shit. What if Dolly Parton wrote us a theme song? Would it sound like this? Would it sound like this? Hippie Witch, season six. Woohoo! That was a good one. Hi, thanks for joining me for episode 535 of Hippie Witch, Magic for a New Age. My name is Joanna DeVoe and I am the groovy creatrix behind Kick-Ass Witch, putting the K in magic, and Hippie Witch, the show you are listening to right now. I also have a free ebook by that name, Hippie Witch, Peace, Love, and all that good shit, and you can pick up a copy of that at www.joannadevoe.com where you will also find the show notes for this episode, including links to today's magical guest, the one and only fabulous Tess Whitehurst. I have been wanting to reach out and invite Tess back onto the podcast for a very long while now, ever since earlier this year when she started writing this series called New Age 2.0 in which she was re-examining her own spiritual beliefs and some of the things that she has been teaching over the years as an author and a very prolific author. She has written many beloved witchy books, particularly books for the New Age community, people that are maybe a little more woo. And I know so many of you fall into that camp And that it's probably never a bad time to have Tess Whitehurst on the podcast. But I wanted to have her on to talk about some of what she was writing in this series called New Age 2.0. Because she was talking about spiritual bypass, toxic positivity, victim blaming, and what I would define as toxic purification. This overemphasis on cleansing, 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 and feeling impure. But something held me back from reaching out, and I would like to share that with you. I feel like as vulnerable as it makes me feel to talk about it, I think it might be worthwhile. And she had a book come out earlier this fall called The Self-Love superpower and I thought this is my in (laughs) she has a new book to promote it looks really good I actually have a copy of it it is really good and so I just sucked it up and I invited her on to the show if you're only here 
because you are only interested in listening to this interview, I recommend bypassing this very, very long intro. I know it's gonna be longer than usual because I have a lot to say. If you don't wanna hear it, you can just skip straight to the interview where we will talk about this series, New Age 2.0 and her new book, The Self-Love Superpower. But in reaching out to her to invite her on to the show and in conducting the interview, something very strange happened, something alarming, and it actually shaped the interview. And so to me, it's worthwhile to be a little vulnerable and share that with you. I did debate for a while whether or not I should share it because it's not only super personal, it's also unflattering. But in the end, I decided that I would because I thought it might be useful. That's a favorite question of mine for all kinds of different things, but especially content creation. Is this useful? And there's something kind of magical about that question because it always seems to cut through the noise of deliberation that's going on in my head to produce instant clarity. And it works every time. Is it useful? Yes, in this case, I think it is useful because it might help someone listening better understand someone they love or maybe just somebody that they work with or interact with on a daily basis. Or to me, even more importantly than that, it might help someone better understand themselves. So here it goes. Here it goes. It's a whole story. So buckle up. Complex post-traumatic stress disorder, CPTSD, has been a hot topic lately. And well, gosh, I wonder why. Whatever could have triggered such an intense interest in the subject of CPTSD. For those listening in the future, this is being recorded mid-November 2021, which means we are currently 21 months into a global pandemic with a side of political unrest. So things have been unusually stressful for a long, long time. And many people are struggling with their mental health for the first time. And those that have a history with that kind of struggle find it has intensified. And really, I hesitate to classify CPTSD as a mental health struggle because it reaches so far beyond your mental health and really gets into your nervous system. It becomes a body thing, which is partly why I wanted to talk about that here today. About 11 years ago, I was formally diagnosed with PTSD, post-traumatic stress disorder. I've actually heard Mel Robbins talking about leaving off the D because there's a stigma attached to that and it implies forever. So that now perhaps maybe we're moving into the era where we just say post-traumatic stress and we don't have to make a disorder out of it. But I was diagnosed with a disorder, which baffled me because this diagnosis did not come on the heels of military combat or some violent, dramatic assault in the streets. 
And that was as far as my understanding of it went at the time. I actually felt foolish and undeserving of the diagnosis. Can you imagine? (laughs) That makes me so sad to think about that. I do not deserve to have post-traumatic stress disorder. There's some healthy self-esteem for you. But anyway, when I expressed that, the doctor went on to explain that I may have been living with it for my entire life due to certain childhood events and that it might be activated or exacerbated by periods of extreme stress. But it wasn't until the last few years that I started hearing people talk about complex PTSD, putting a C in front of it, which really put a name finally to what that doctor described to me that day. And more importantly than that, it gave me tools to manage it during a global pandemic. So I'm super grateful for all that talk. And if this piqued your interest, I highly recommend checking out the work of Pete Walker, who is a licensed psychotherapist and an author who has written a lot on the subject. Or if you like a more casual approach, go over to YouTube and check out Anna Runkle. She goes by the crappy childhood fairy over there. And she is not a doctor, but she is a fellow survivor with tons of insight and a sense of mission that you can feel. It feels like she's on your side. And she shares a lot of great tips and techniques that I have personally found to be super useful. I would love to have her on the show one of these days. But at any rate, let's get to what happened as it relates to this interview specifically and why it might be useful to you. At some point during the pandemic, I started to realize that some old symptoms I thought I had completely overcome, they somehow snuck their way back into my life and they were starting to cause problems. And by the way, Tess doesn't know any of this. I hope she doesn't mind me sharing this here on her episode. It's just the truth. This is what happened in recording this episode. So one of these symptoms is the freeze response, which is pretty common. And the other is called dysregulation. And I used to think of dysregulation only in terms of emotional dysregulation. But come to find out, it can be more physical than that. And it involves your nervous system. Your your nervous system can become dysregulated. So if something knocks you off balance, even the tiniest bit of stress, your physical body can be thrown out of whack. And you might drop your keys and run into the wall on your way out the door. Hello, it's me. (laughs) That is so me. This happens to me when I'm running late or if I have to do something that I'm intimidated by and right before I do it. Running late, though, is the main trigger for this in my case. So the most effective way that I have found to manage it is to not run late, which I've gotten much better at over the years, but it's something that I still have to work on. I have to do it deliberately. I have to purposely create a cushion for myself when what I really want to do is just wait to the last minute to get ready and hit the road or whatever it is I have to do. 
get on the phone for a call or do a Zoom meetup. I will procrastinate until the very last minute and then spend that last minute running around like a chicken with my head cut off. Something about running late turns me in to an absolute clown. I literally start running in circles and dropping things and forgetting things and whacking my shin on the coffee table and spilling my purse and my thoughts get scrambled and I just become this kind of chaotic, whirling dervish of discombobulation. Discombobulation is the perfect word for it because it sounds how it feels. I feel discombobulated. So there's that. That is what the dysregulation of your nervous system feels like. The freeze response is more commonly known and it's part of that classic fear response of fight, flight, freeze, or fawn. The four Fs. And most of us, as human beings, we have one or more of those, fight, flight, freeze, or fawn. One or more of those we have probably experienced when we felt threatened. It's activated when you feel threatened in some way. I definitely have experienced all of them, but historically my go-to has most often been to freeze, the freeze response, which is actually pretty mystifying in the moment. It just doesn't make sense to me. Like, why would you just freeze up and do nothing? It seems much more productive to fight or flee, but it's not an intellectual thing. It's not a conscious decision until it is. And even getting there can be some work. But for the most part, when it happens, I'm not looking at the threatening situation and going, you know what I should do here? Nothing! <laughs> Absolutely nothing! I should feel nothing and I should do nothing about taking on this threat. And keep in mind too, like a threat for me can just be running late. Like I have a lot of stories about that in my head that feel threatening to me. But it's really not about those stories anymore consciously. It's beyond thought. It's automatic because I've had many, many years of developing that neural pathway. I am well trained to freeze. You can just tell by the, sar by the sarcastic way that I say it that I am not pleased about this. But it just, it is what it is. And it's useful to recognize that. And, and there is that word again, useful. It's useful to know yourself, know thyself, which know what your triggers are and learn to identify what your automatic response is. Like what automatic, deeply ingrained response gets triggered when such and such happens. You have to learn how to recognize the trigger and your response so that you can make a plan to make another choice the next time it happens so that you can experience a better outcome. And yeah, it's a lot of work to manage these things, but it beats the hell out of the alternative. And the good news is you can develop real skills and create new automations if you stick with it, if you stay committed, which I actually thought I had done. But 
unprecedented times. Unprecedented times can shake your foundation and leave you feeling shaken in a way that signifies it's time to find new ground. It's time to find a new way of approaching your security, your sense of security. A new threat is a call to develop some new tools, perhaps. I hope this is making sense because this is the best that I can do to explain it to you. So as this applies to Tess Whitehurst is, is early, early in the pandemic, she reached out to see if I would like to do an ad swap with her podcast. She has a podcast called Monday Magic with Natasha Levenger, and they made this really great professional sounding commercial for their podcast. There's music in the background and it's so well done. And they're like, hey, would you run this on your show? And in exchange, you can make us a commercial and we will run it on our show. I was like, absolutely, of course. I was super flattered that she asked and really excited about the opportunity. And I ended up running their commercial a few times and I was insecure about it. I would like book in the commercial like, oh my gosh, I know this is a commercial, but here we go. (laughs) I'm supposed to make one for their podcast, but I haven't done it yet. And guess what? I never made the commercial. I never sent it to her. Something in me was triggered, some sort of insecurity was activated. I felt threatened. You might have heard me talk in the past about stranger danger, which for me, it's not just about people who are scary, like internet strangers who come after you aggressively and they're being mean to you. In my experience, it's actually people who come after me because they love me so much and they want to send me things and they say they're just going to show up on my door or drive across the country. And I don't know what to make of that. I don't know these people. I'm a single mom. I don't know what I would do if they showed up at my door. And this doesn't happen often. It's unusual. Most people are totally cool and I love hearing from them. But When someone starts acting weird like that, it really freaks me out. And it's happened enough that it's really scary to me. When my podcast grows, I always feel threatened and I will often pull back. And so I think what happened is that. I think it scared me a bit and... I kept procrastinating and kind of beating up on myself about it. And I'd be like, why are you procrastinating on this? Why are you freezing? This isn't scary. This is a great opportunity. And Tess is so cool. Like, why would you put her off like this? And keep in mind, at no point did she reach out like, where's this commercial lady? (laughs) It, it, It was fine on her end, as far as I could tell. It was just me suffering over this and the more time that went by the worse I felt and it just started seeming to get further and further away from me so I did a bit of shadow work around that and I boiled it down to one sad little insecurity that was hiding out in my subconscious which was I don't think they're gonna like me 
I don't think the Monday Magic podcast audience is going to like me. I'm so weird. I'm so goofy. I do things like this. I talk about my personal life. I bust into song. (laughs) I just, I don't know. I feel like I've developed a certain amount of trust with my listeners and inviting new listeners in really intimidated me. And so instead of pushing past that fear, which is what I would encourage anyone else to do, I froze. And instead of reaching out to Tess and saying, hey, I'm really struggling with this, I froze. And then when I wanted to invite her on the podcast because I was loving her New Age 2.0 series, I froze. And thank God for shadow work because it was that realization that finally gave me some compassion for myself and what was going on. And then when I saw the self-love superpower book was coming out, I was like, okay, just reach out to her. Just reach out to her. And I was able to do that without any fear, without feeling threatened. And she was so lovely. She's like, of course, I would love to come back on your show. And all was well until the minutes leading up to our interview because I held the conviction that I owed her an apology. I wanted to apologize, but I didn't know how to explain what happened. It was so embarrassing and so weird, and I didn't know if she would understand. So I, I knew to give myself a cushion before the interview, and I was sitting at my standing desk. I have a standing desk, but I bought a bar stool to go with it so I can either sit or stand. And I was sitting, <laughs> this is so goofy. I was sitting on the bar stool thinking, okay, it's no big deal. You're human. You made a mistake. Just apologize to her and then you can do the interview. Because I just couldn't talk to her like this whole thing had not happened. I felt I had to acknowledge it. And this particular bar stool it swivels, it swirls. And so sometimes I will spin on it. And this particular moment, I got really in my conviction. I was like, yeah, it's no big deal. I'll just apologize. It'll be fine. She's such a cool person. No big deal. And I like pushed against the desk and I went to spin it out like, woohoo. <laughs> and the chair fell off the stand. And it was right before our interview was supposed to go live, like the minute before. And this completely knocked me off balance and into a state of dysregulation that had me grabbing my computer off my desk and my microphone and like diving. I don't know why I went right into like combat mode, but I did. I like dove across the room. (laughs) I left the broken chair behind me, dove across the room with my laptop and my microphone so I could be there right on the dot, like right the second that the interview was supposed to start. And at that point, I was a nervous wreck. I had completely knocked myself off balance and diving across the room to the floor where I have this little altar set up where I sometimes record because I can set my laptop and my microphone up there. And when we were trying to connect and say hello, Apparently, my microphone had be, had gotten unplugged, and so I couldn't hear her. And I'm like, hello, I can't hear you. Oh, my gosh, what's going on? And I'm struggling to plug the microphone back in. And 
I have enough self-awareness to know like, holy shit, I am completely dysregulated. I am shaking. This is wild. But it did not occur to me to just pause and say, you know what? I could really use a minute. Is it okay if I just take a minute here to center myself? For sure, she would have been like, yeah, no problem. But what did I do? I proceeded in that state. I apologized to her and she was like, yeah, that's no problem. That didn't hurt me. Like if anything, it hurt you, but it's no big deal. And if you still want to make the commercial, we'll totally air it. No love loss. It's cool. And we went into the interview and I could not calm down. I couldn't get centered. I kept trying. I was taking my hands. A trick I like to do is push my hands against my heart because it tones the vagus nerve. It can calm me down. But I was doing it while I was trying to talk and while I was trying to listen. And so many mistakes were made. I was scrambling up words. I called her partner Ted. I called him Tess. I injected words that weren't meant to be there. Thank God I can edit these things, which is totally what I did. I ended up leaving one moment in just so you could hear a little bit of what happened. And it's kind of shocking to you how much you cannot hear. I was pleasantly surprised when I listened back to it and I sound fairly calm, but I did not feel calm on the inside, which I think is a good point. Like you never really know what's going on inside someone. I have done hundreds of podcasts. This is 535. I've done even more than what we're counting here because I do a lot for Patreon that I don't count. I've done hundreds of videos. So there is a part of me that will just kick in and perform no matter what is going on inside of me. But the suffering really, really, really sucks. So I share all this to say, one, this podcast is heavily edited for me <laughs> and for you and for you. I want it to be a smooth listening experience. But also to say, if I had it to do over, I simply would have paused when my chair broke. I would have paused. I would have calmly signed into Zoom to conduct the interview. And I would have said, you know what? I had a little accident. Can I just take a minute or two to collect myself? It doesn't take long. If you have a dysregulated nervous system, there are breathing techniques you can do. Again, my favorite is to just press my hands over my heart. Mel Robbins has a really great mantra that's super duper cheesy and it totally works. She has you press on your heart and say, I'm okay. I am safe. I am loved. And it works like magic. I love it so much. I've actually shared it with my son because a lot of issues came up for him also during the pandemic. I noticed he was very, very insecure and nervous all the time. And this is something that you can teach anyone. You can teach a little kid. And so I have him doing this, putting his hand over his heart and saying, I'm okay. I am safe. I am loved. And because he is Tanner Golfball DeVoe, he cannot end it without adding his own. He says, I am fabulous. <laughs> Maybe you want to try that out. I'm okay. I'm safe. I am loved. And I am fabulous. We can be human. We can be human. And we can still be worthy of love. And we can still be fabulous. And that is the message that I wanted to share with you here today. 
on this episode where we are talking about the self-love superpower, talking about self-love as a superpower. This is how you love the soft animal of your body, as Mary Oliver put it. Loving your body, caring for your body, learning how to soothe an anxious nervous system is a powerful form of self-love. Take care of yourself. Take care of your body so that it can in turn take care of you, which it works so hard to do. How can you not have compassion for that? And then speaking of compassion, that is a theme for this interview coming up because this is a time, the time that we find ourselves living in now. This moment in history is about not just having compassion for ourselves, but having compassion for who we were in the past and learning to become more aware of the ways that we may have not been compassionate to each other in the past. Becoming more aware of the ways we may have been blind to the struggles of our fellow human beings or engaging in spiritual bypass. This is a time now when many of us are changing in terms of the way we see the injustices of the world and we're experiencing an urgency to do better, which is where that amazing Maya Angelou quote comes in so handy. Do the best you can until you know better. Then when you know better, do better. Because we can't evolve if our shame binds us so tightly to the past that we can't forgive and move past it. And I think that's what the various social justice movements that came into prominence during the pandemic are asking us to do, to evolve. It's an opportunity for real growth, both individually and collectively. And that is one of the greatest gifts that we have been given in recent years, and we won't be able to accept that invitation if we're too busy denying it or beating ourselves up about how we behaved in the past. So love yourself, friends. Love yourselves, and please enjoy this interview with the fabulous Tess Whitehurst. Hi, Tess. Welcome back to Hippie Witch. Hi, Joanna. Thanks for having me. I've been wanting to have you on the show for a while, ever since you started talking about the New Age community. You did this series. Oh, yeah. New Age 2.0. And I was thrilled that you were writing about the things that you were writing about. And then you came out with a book called The Self-Love Superpower. And I was like, there's my in. (laughs) Oh, cool. (laughs) We'll talk about the book and I'll get to ask her about this new age too. It was a while ago that you did it, but I thought it 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 was significant that you specifically did it. Oh, really? That's so interesting. Thank you. Yeah, that was like maybe in May, like sometime maybe in the spring or early summer. But thanks for noticing that. That was something that meant a lot to me. It was important for me to do that. I felt that I felt that it was important for our community. You were writing about spiritual bypass, victim blaming, what I would call toxic purification, which is so ironic. (laughs) Cleansing purification. Yeah. I haven't ever heard that, but yes, yes. I started picking up on that when I was making my way out of 
the raw veganism movement. Uh-huh. I just was like, wow, there's a big emphasis on cleansing. And it's reminding yes. me so much of the Christianity I grew up in. We're dirty and we're born into sin. And yep, you wrote about that. Yeah, I because I was I was raw vegan and I was obsessed with cleansing. I mean, I still like cleansing, but I I hope it's not toxic purification anymore. <laughs> but I did identify like, oh, this is sometimes very. I mean, it comes from being fundamentally feeling not okay, and so instead of saying, "Oh, I need more sage," it's more honest and helpful. To, to say, I don't feel okay. And then you can work from there, you know? Yeah. Yeah. And maybe you're not innately dirty. Exactly. Don't start with that premise. But if you notice it, I mean, that I think it's valuable to notice. Oh, I feel that way. Now, yeah. why do I feel that way? And how can I lovingly? compassionately begin to shift that. And where did that come from? And for you, it sounds like, and for me, and I mean, our whole culture is, even if you weren't raised Christian, you still are in a culture that's very influenced by that paradigm. There you go. (laughs) Yeah. So much of our literature, our movies, our stories, even when they don't say anything about the Bible or Christ or Mother Mary, it's just still those stories, those fundamental beliefs about our bodies, our sexuality, our worthiness, you know, it's like that. They definitely say fundamentally, we are sinners. Yep. Original sin, born into sin, born sinners. And I think too, the emphasis to deny your body. Mm Mm-hmm. And that the body is bad somehow, I feel that extends out into the way we treat the planet that we live on as well. Yeah. Yes. Yeah. So I guess I think you're the perfect person to write about these things because you're very well known in the new age community and you did it in a way where it wasn't like, let's just throw all of this out. There's room for these different concepts. You, you wrote this in three pieces. Mm-hmm. And yeah. you're like, you know, sometimes you want to do some space clearing, you know, but there's nuance here. You approached it that way. Yeah. I just think the pandemic and um, also the Black Lives Matter movement, all the stuff that we went through culturally within the last couple of years. I mean, individually, we all, I think many of us, well, many, many of us are examining everything, re-examining everything. Like we have a new way to look at just we we're thrust into new perspectives, you know? Mm-hmm. And I think that all that new age stuff, it was important to say like a part, I mean, it took a while, but initially when I started to tune into it, a part of me wanted to be like, oh, this is wrong. This is a wrong path. I I was confused. Maybe I should just quit, completely quit my job. But I I mean, we all also had a lot of, I mean, not all of us, but I, I had, I feel like in a way we had imposed solitude. So we had time to sit and really think. So I did realize I didn't want to throw all of it out there were parts of it that are valuable to me, but it was, it was shadow work. It was mm-hmm. shining light onto the parts that are 
that were toxic that are toxic so that we can be honest about them and heal them within ourselves. Yeah. Yeah. I like to, when you were speaking about Louise Hay, for example, yeah, you weren't like, she's evil. She's horrible. We must burn all her books. Yeah. You were saying this is wrong. This statement here, or this was inappropriate, but that's to me, that's where we, I say we, that was ahead of my time, but you know, I loved Louise Hay too. Once I got my hands on it, that's where we were at that time. And we have evolved and we're still evolving out of that now. And I think it's a little bit like medicine. I think we will always be able to look back and be like, well, that was barbaric and that was wrong. Yes. (laughs) But what did we, but what can we keep from that, that we're building on now? You know, sometimes maybe you have to throw it all out, but I, I do think there is value in some of what she was teaching. It certainly helped me on my path. Me too. Exactly. And I think that we, I mean, I like to think that my philosophy, the way I see the world and the way I practice my spirituality, that it is, it it can evolve. I can learn something new and then say, oh, I'm going to do this differently in the future. And I imagine, I mean, I like to think that many of us in alternative spirituality like to think of spirituality that way, not like this is the way we do it. And this is how we're always going to do it, but let's continually question. And if we receive new information or new perspectives, then let's evolve. I mean, that's a living spirituality. That's creative spirituality. It's a path. It's a journey. It's not this book was written in stone and this is the law. (laughs) Yeah. Yeah. And, and yeah, I feel grateful to Louise. Hey, I I'm glad that came through because I did not throw away her book and I do value her teaching, but I did in the past, I was like, well, if Louise Hay says it, it's gotta be right. (laughs) You know? And then in with the new light of just what I was learning and thinking about and seeing during the pandemic, because it was also in the pandemic. I, I also felt like, wow, the, the class, I mean, not that I wasn't aware of of class of like how certain people are privileged in all number of ways. I, it wasn't that I wasn't aware of it. It's just the pandemic made it so obvious, like who's getting sick the most. Oh, it's people who have to go to work. They, they don't have the privilege of staying home and that's class. I mean, and, and like stuff like that, or, or people who are getting evicted and they have no, they just don't have financial support in that situation. Like that just felt so deep. And so it, it made it so I could no longer not notice because that what I talked about in case, I mean, I'm sure many of your listeners didn't read those articles yet, but um, what I was mentioning was a statement that she made that was about how it was something like, if you were to give everyone in the world, the same amount of money Mm -hmm. within a matter of weeks, the poor people would be poor again. And the rich people would be rich, richer. It was something like that. And then I heard that. And I was like, that is false. That is false. Oh, I grew up on that test. Yeah. I I mean, every grown up I can think of during my upbringing believed that and taught that. I'm not kidding. Like that is, that was when I read that in your piece, I was like, and that's exactly how I grew up. Uh, Cause was it like, um, 
like prosperity gospel? I didn't grow up in prosperity gospel, but I think just a very, 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 very fundamentalist Christian slash Republican, you know, we all start with an even playing field. Capitalism is Mm -hmm. wonderful and the people who have succeeded deserve it. And the Mm -hmm. people on the street, you don't give them handouts because they'll just blow it. Right. But you also hear this a lot just in the personal development movement specifically about finance. Mm -hmm. And you'll hear it repeated often that people win the lottery and then they lose it all. Or you'll hear a lot of stories that also reinforce that message, I think. Right. And it and because of the pandemic, like I felt really motivated to learn more about helping people, not just, I mean, it's my job to write about spirituality and to teach, but I was like, no, I really want to help people who really need help, you know, to eat or to get medical care. And so I read a book called the life you can save by Peter Singer, which I quoted in one of those articles that we're talking about. And he talked about a study that actually showed that that belief that, you know, poor people will just be poor and rich people will be rich because it's their mindset. It's false. I mean, because the study was what happens if we give poor families, you know, in severe poverty, what happens if we give them a certain amount of money? So they have a, like a basic income. And what happened was they built a roof on their house and they made it so their kids didn't have to work in sweatshops. And they, over time, they, they got themselves out of severe poverty in a long-term way. And I mean, just like thinking about that, like thinking about their kids were working in sweatshops. They did not have time or like, we don't, we can't even imagine in the West, most of almost all of us can't even imagine mm-hmm. you're sending your kid to work at a sweatshop so that your family can eat and not having a roof on your house. You know, like that to me, having, making statements like the rich people are, if we give everybody the same amount of money, the rich people will be the same amount rich and the poor people, the same amount poor within a matter of weeks. It just was suddenly like so obviously untrue. Yeah. Yeah. Well, and it's one of those things that I think this is what I personally think. Do you, do you mind talking about this? I guess I should say, cause I find this really interesting, but I don't want to take you too far down a road. You're like, wait a minute, where what? are we going? No, here? not at all. This is great. I think the new age community, maybe just humans, but since we're focused on the new age community, they'll take maybe a grain of truth and then just blow it up and create like a bizarre kind of conspiracy out of it oh or, make, or make it an absolute. So maybe there is a grain of truth in America that some people have a poverty mentality and, oh, some, yeah. and some people feel so entitled that if you took everything away from them, they would go, but I can think of some examples, some famous ones. They just go out and like make it happen again. And again. they feel entitled. They feel they're owed that they're aggressive they know how, you know what I mean? I, yeah. I, that's a tiny little grain, grain of 
truth that then gets turned into, I don't even know what that beast is that we're trying to talk about here. Yeah, I totally agree. Because I mean, not only that, but also it is valuable to look at your limiting beliefs about money and you can change your own frequency around money and you can attract more of it. What do you do? Like those things are true. But I think what isn't true is saying, oh, because of these principles, because you can shift your own vibration around money, then people who are poor, they are bringing that all upon themselves. I mean, it's just not black and white like that. Yep. Yes. And it is black and white like that. If you catch my drift. (laughs) Oh yeah. Mm -hmm. You know, it's, it's just systemic. It has to do with education and it's a generational thing. And it's super interesting to me. Andrew Yang, of all people, I just thought he was a joke when he was running for president. I just thought he was, I don't know what I thought he was doing, just trying to get publicity for his brand or something. Uh And I didn't take him seriously at all for most of the time. But then, I don't know, I think I heard him on a podcast or something. And I was like, oh, he has some really interesting ideas. And then I started listening to him more. And I was like, okay, he probably has no chance at all. But these are some interesting ideas he has about giving people money, universal Mm -hmm. income. And now we're seeing this actually being put into practice as an experimentation here and there. So it's exciting. Some of the things that have come out of these last few years. Yeah. Yeah. You seemed so confident in presenting this. I think these are things I was thinking and you said And I was very admiring of your confidence in doing that. I'm wondering, how do you go forward now as an author who has all these books? Do you go forward feeling very confident? This is the work that I did then. And now it's maybe going to have a slightly different flavor. Do you feel like, oh, when they update that edition, I'm going to add a forward. How how do you feel about older work versus, oh my gosh, I, I made this big personal change. You've probably had a yeah. million personal changes in your life. I would. Imagine. Oh, that's a good question. Well, yeah, I mean, when I first started writing books, it was hard to just get used to, oh, I, I changed my mind about this thing and now it's in print and lots of people are reading it and it's on their shelves forever. <laughs> yes. That was a bad feeling. <laughs> and then I just had to get used to it and just be like, you know what? people write books from where they are when they're writing the book and they're a work in progress. It's true for everybody. So I feel, I mean, and I, even though I have evolved and I see things in a different way, especially since these last couple of years, I still, when I look back, I feel like pretty like, oh, you know what? I was doing pretty good for where I was at then. (laughs) You know, I feel supportive mostly for the most part of my past self. Mm -hmm, mm Mm-hmm. Yeah. You're a great writer too. I love how personable you are. And it's like reading a conversation with a friend. Thank you. That's so nice. So what is the self-love superpower? So that is my new book, The Self-Love Superpower, The Magical Art of Approving of Yourself No Matter What. And it is I was um, inspired to write it because I, on my podcast, I had mentioned that I had a, I got (laughs) kind of depressed on my birthday, which has happened frequently. And someone uh, emailed us about me and my podcast co-host Natasha about how she was surprised that I would have a bad 
depressing birthday since I was somebody who wrote about self-help and I, she just, I guess, imagined that I didn't have things like a bad depressing birthday where I didn't feel like going anywhere (laughs) and I just wanted to cry all day. And so then I thought, you know, I want to talk about how imperfect, because I I guess I kind of realized that maybe I had left out that uh, the vulnerability piece. And also the, um, it, it feels so important to me in the spiritual path to feel all the feelings and when they come up to, to allow them and to look at them, to breathe into them, it just feels like such an important piece. And when the more I do that, the more I'm like, oh, I'm really having, I'm crying a lot. I want to know why. And I want to, um, feel that and heal that and go through that, you know, I feel like the more that I do that, the more I love and approve of myself unconditionally, it's a, and it's a lifelong journey. So I wanted to write about those dynamics of how I do that, how we can do that, how we can be kind to ourselves, compassionate with ourselves, patient with ourselves and not feel, and there's just so much I've learned over the years about how to do that, like not feel like we need to be awesome. Like I have a chapter called let's forget about being awesome. (laughs) (laughs) Because I don't like, I don't know if you had this, but I got the idea growing up the way that my parents were. I just got this idea that I needed to grow up and make them proud by being famous and brilliant and just so out of the box and so good at everything. And, you know, just, I just got that feeling like that it was important to be so cool and so great. And it's just not, it's like so different from actual self-love, like having a high opinion of yourself in all these different ways and self-love are, it sounds like they would be the same, but they're so different. So like a big part of my learning process was, to let go of feeling like I, I mean, I think we're all remarkable. I think we're all unique and we all have things we're great at, but to just really completely let go of believing that I needed to be in any way remarkable in order to be deserving of love was such a, it, it continues to be such an important piece for me. Yeah. I love how the, speaking of the new age community, I love how we continue to unpack self-love. Yeah. So, you know, you know, we start maybe with some Louise Hay and then we're into the shadow work all of a sudden. And then we get to the point where like, okay, self-love is self-acceptance. It's self-worth. It's being worthy as is in the moment, no matter what comes up. Yeah. And it is, I think it is helpful to think of when you love a person or an animal, when you just, if you think of someone you just adore, like probably your son or, you know, my brother or my partner, when I think of them, I don't think like when I think of loving them, I'm not thinking of all the things they're good at or all the ways they tell the right joke at the right time or whatever, you know, not at all. It's like, I don't want them to think they have to be anyway. I want them to know that I, my love transcends any ways that they are or aren't awesome. So it's a similar, that's, that's how we can really tune in. What is really self-love? It's not thinking that your body looks like it would 
be in a magazine. Like so that's not, that has nothing to do with self-love. Yeah. I think, oh, our generation, we had so much of that with magazines, but now kids have Instagram and it just continues this, right. like, this idea of you're not enough, but if you buy this product, you might get right one day. <laughs> exactly. Or read this book or take this seminar or whatever it is. Yeah. It's like very, very bad magic that we are convinced to hate ourselves. Yeah. I was really into self-love for a long time before I realized how much I hated myself. Oh, it made me feel that way too. And, and you mentioned my son, part of that is self-parenting, you know, uh-huh. and yeah. Look, looking at yourself the way you would look at maybe your child or an imagined child, if you don't have a child or your fur baby or whatever it is, you would, they could cry. They could be sad they could be wearing some really dumpy sweatpants. Yes. <laughs> it would be okay. You yes. Know? You might tell them, you know, you've been in those dumpy sweatpants for two weeks. <laughs> I feel like it's time to change your clothes, but that doesn't mean you don't love them. <laughs> exactly. It has nothing to do with how much you love them. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Oh, you are a fun, surprising person too. I remember when I found out that you grew up near and around a funeral home. And it's interesting that you're a witch and you also are this person that has this very light personality and you walk this line between what I think of as more of like the new age, what formerly would be called maybe like a love and light kind of vibe. And then Mm -hmm. you're just a full on witch at the same time. You have a, a big spectrum like oh, thanks. Tess is large. And so <laughs> I feel like you probably have a lot of different cool experiences with self-love because that's a lot to love. Ah, yeah. It really does make the difference between feeling at home in the world, feeling joyful, feeling like whatever happens, you're going to be okay. I mean, it's, that's, that's what makes the difference is knowing that you have your own back, that you can support yourself, give yourself a hug say kind words to yourself, even when you make mistakes, you know, it does, it's just so fundamental. I love that there is a shadow love or a sh- shadow love, a shadow worky chapter. What is it? Shine light on your shadow. I, I flipped to that chapter first. I was like, yes, this is for me. Ah, <laughs> oh. yeah. And what you said about Ted, your partner, I was like, I am Ted. I'm Ted. I'm the weirdo. I totally related to Ted's experience. And I appreciate you putting personal stories in there like that. Oh, that's interesting. You had that. So that story, the story about him worrying that he was too much of a stoner guy. Yeah. And just too too much of a weirdo and outsider. And you you are too sweet. And that dynamic, you know, of just she's the good one and he's the bad one. I was the good one turned to the bad one, but it's complicated, but I definitely related to Ted. Yeah. It, it, and I wanted to tell that story too, because so for your listeners, so I was talking about how Ted was raised in a way where he felt like he needed to be like less, um, less alternative, less, <laughs> he, he's like a natural, he's a songwriter. He's a rock guy. He was in a band when I met him. But he felt, he always, I noticed he had this fundamental feeling that he was too weird and Mm -hmm. all it did, Mm -hmm. it was true that his friends and family, when I met them, I was surprised. It felt like, 
oh, these, these people seem very different than Ted. <laughs> they seem very like, uh, just more conservative, you know, Ted has shaggy hair and he just looked like a rock guy and they looked more, you know, conservative. And I kind of was the opposite where I felt where I came from that I, I felt like I needed to be cool. And my brother and my cousins were in punk bands and I wasn't, <laughs> and I felt like, what's wrong with me? Why am I not as cool as them? And so it was interesting to me to like that, how Ted and I kind of, we came from different backgrounds, but we similarly criticized ourselves. So it's useful. I wanted to tell that story because it's useful to notice, oh, I got this idea that I'm supposed to be this when really I'm naturally this and to just notice that's really not you. You don't have to internalize that. It doesn't mean you're you need to try to pretend to be what you're not or beat yourself up for not being that, but be bringing consciousness. I mean, that's shadow work is bringing consciousness to things like that, that you may previously just have assumed, well, of course I should be cooler than I am. Obviously. Obviously. Or... <laughs> <laughs> yeah. You know? Well, I see here's the, di- I think I was very much like you when I was younger and I decided I had to become cool. Not, I want to be cool or why am I not cool? I worked very, very hard to try to figure it out. Me too. Speak, but then I was in the punk grant band and I did those things and I think it was like a self-betrayal, to be honest, but I relate to what Ted was saying about being the weirdo because I was always called the weirdo, no matter where I landed. (laughs) And I think there's a self-hatred in that because you assume other people won't like you, which we Mm -hmm. were kind of talking about before this interview started. And I still am surprised to find little pockets of that still in myself. You can be so self-aware. And then another little shadow pops up and you're like, oh my gosh, you're still there. (laughs) It never really goes away. It's just a part of you. Yeah. I think that that was another theme that I wanted to talk about in my book, the self-love superpower, because I, I think that we need to learn when we're on this path of creative, magical spirituality to flow with that process of continually learning oh I have this to work on and oh here's another incarnation of this same old challenge and here's this challenging feeling coming up the longer I've been on this path the more I've learned to breathe into open up to allow all of that stuff to be there initially and this goes along with the new age thing like initially I had this idea I'm just going to keep cleansing and healing and cleansing and healing. And then one day I'm going to be just purely made of light. I'm going to have no problems. I'm never going to make mistakes and I'm always going to be happy. I mean, (laughs) I wouldn't have maybe said that, but I had, I think I had that idea somewhere. So then it added insult to injury when I would feel down on myself, or I would think a negative thought, or I would manifest something negative, you know, but if you instead learn, oh, I'm going to breathe through this spiraling path and I'm going to open up and I'm going to allow, then that becomes the path. And then when those things do come up, not if, but when they come up, Mm. then you have these tools, this sort of habit of softening, opening, shining light, having compassion for yourself. And then that, that's the path. That's where we learn. That's where we grow. That's where we expand. 
Yes, I love that you use the word habit too. And I imagine this is why you and your partner are still together. You probably came together because those wounds were a perfect match. Yes, yeah. And I feel like that can turn into a really bad situation if you're not in the habit of opening up to, you know, when something triggers you, you open your heart instead of shutting down. It's probably one of the secrets to why you guys have been together such a long time. Yeah. And it used to be pretty hard. I met him when I was 21. And oh my goodness. Yeah. It, I was just realizing just today, I was like, oh, we're just at the point now where we, I, it, me, where I personally have been with Ted longer than I haven't been with Ted in my life. <laughs> oh my goodness. You guys yeah. aren't married though. No, but maybe someday we're always like, oh, maybe this year. <laughs> not on paper. Not on paper. Yeah. Now, but we feel definitely feel married. But yeah, it used to be pretty. There was there were some gnarly moments, <laughs> but now it's we don't have the same. I mean, it's a similar thing, right? It's like we learn. Okay, here's some uncomfortable feelings coming up. We're okay. We can breathe through them. We can love ourselves and each other through them. So what does he? What does he think about all this? Is he game with you? Like, can you have these kinds of conversations? Oh yeah, yeah. He's a he. He gets it. He's a good guy to talk to for sure. Yeah. I guess it would be hard to imagine (laughs) not. That would be super awkward, I guess, because you are a little bit prolific. And what else would you guys talk about? Because you've always got a new book that you're working on. You have a podcast. (laughs) Right. Yeah. Well, he's a songwriter. So he has a similar, um, he similarly wants to explore all the feelings. So that's, that comes in handy. Did he do the music for Monday Magic? Oh, well, that I can neither confirm nor deny for legal reasons. (laughs) It's very, it's extremely professional. It blew my hair back. It's Ah, quite good. I like it. Mm -hmm. Did you want to tell us what Monday Magic is? Oh, Magic Monday. That is my podcast that I do with my friend, Natasha. I'm saying it backwards. Mm Mm-hmm. Hmm. That's totally kind of, fine. Okay. That's just how this interview is going today. <laughs> <laughs> well, we are in the middle of Mercury retrograde. Oh God. Thank you. I have something to blame. Yeah, totally. <laughs> yes, blame it. I, you know what? I famously say, I hate talking about Mercury retrograde. And then every time it comes around, something makes me have to talk about it. <laughs> it is. It can be intense. I don't like complaining about it in the same way many people do, but I do find myself talking about it kind of a lot because it's interesting. It's fascinating. I don't know up. if I want to believe Tess. I feel like <laughs> I, I'm just like that with everything anyway. And when it comes up, I just feel like people get so worked up about it. Yeah. And and I just feel like, but also sometimes life is hard, <laughs> you know, no matter yeah. what's going on. But what do you think about it? Well, I do feel it. I've really been feeling this one, but in an emotional way, it's Mercury retrograde in Libra. So it's like partnerships and relationships. And I w- went home to my hometown in the Central Valley of California to help my dad clear clutter, which there was a lot of it. And then since then, it, I can feel the deep emotions moving, like the deep and just relationship, family relationship energy 
in a, in childhood stuff, I could feel it. And I, I feel like it's related to this mercury retrograde, but I do feel like I usually notice something being revised or shifted or, and, or usually also some kind of challenge to, uh, to go with the flow. I feel like that's that trickster energy of mercury that if, so, if like, oh, oh, is this what you don't want me to disturb? Well, what happens if I do? And then like kind of learning how to expand into that. So I value it and I find it to be an adventure. And sometimes mm. it's a little hard. Yeah. Yeah. It kind of makes a clown of me every time because I really come out like nobody mentioned Mercury retrograde. <laughs> I think it's bullshit. And then it's like, oh my God, my computer's not working. Why won't my cord plug into the microphone? Right. I can't hear you. I'm talking backwards. <laughs> right. Totally. I, but I do like to ignore the rules of it when people say, oh, don't travel and don't sign contracts. I do like to specifically travel and sign contracts because I don't like rules. <laughs> mm-hmm. Yeah. It's interesting that you're decluttering. Were you ever not? a tidy person. Yeah. I, um, Ted actually talks about when he met me, how I was really very not well, because I'm a Virgo. Are you, what's your sign? Oh, again? You're a Virgo. I'm not going to believe anything you say about not being a tidy. Oh, person. no, no, no. <laughs> See, here's the thing about Virgos is because of our perfectionist thing, there can sometimes be very, very messy Virgos because if you can't do it perfectly, don't do it at all. So oh. I did have that when I like until when was it really? I don't, I, I feel like as I started to get into my twenties then I started to be somewhat less dirty. No. It, yeah. I mean, I just, I did go through periods where I was pretty messy, but then I learned about feng shui and I grew up a little bit and then I really started valuing tidiness, but I, yeah, I had that thing of, if I can't do it perfectly, I'm just not going to try to do it at all, which I think I have I have talked to other Virgos who have had that. Interesting. I have known none of these Virgos. I'm a, <laughs> I'm a Libra. You asked me what I am. Oh, that's I, right. My first husband was a Virgo. And this is not, this is an outlaw type of person, except in this one regard of just tidiness. And I made him insane. I <laughs> really mm. just drove him nuts because I need like paper, stacks of papers around me at all times. And I'd like put a drink down and he'd slip a coaster underneath it. And that was my first experience of that side of Virgo. Mm. So and I was, I was asking, cause you're such a decluttering type of person. Yeah. And I feel like I don't want to call myself a hoarder, but I don't like to let go of things. Oh. And, and I love clutter. Like I really like it. I feel at home in it. And I've been doing intense decluttering since 2015 and I can only do it in pieces because it brings up so much stuff. It does. Yeah. It's really deep. Well, that's why I was asking you if, if you have those experiences, because I hear you talking about mercury retrograde and this ancestral stuff coming up. And I was like, Oh, well, you don't have to have a pile of stuff, I guess, to have those shadows stirred. Oh yeah, totally. But I mean, I did really move a big pile of my dad's stuff. I mean, really big. Cause he doesn't get rid of, I mean, very, very little does he ever get rid of. And so there was some of my stuff mixed in there or stuff I had given him, or I found 
old brochures from when I first started practicing feng shui that I like have not had in my environment for over a decade, you know, so what's that? He's proud of you. Oh, well, I mean, I don't know if he was aware that he still had that, Uh, uh, (laughs) but uh. I'm sure he saved it though, because he like, I could tell when I was helping him get motivated to let go of some stuff that he does have sentimental attachment to stuff. So there may be some truth in that, but anyway, I did move a lot of energy that was, I did do feel like was connected to me and my energy when I did that. Well, what tips help you when you're doing that? Cause I can't think of anything more intense than going to your dad's house and decluttering stuff that goes all the way down to your childhood. I would, that would be deep. I would, be it was a, deep. I would be a puddle. Oh, well, you know what? I get into the zone and this might be a Virgo thing. Cause I was, it, it was intriguing to me. So I get into this zone where I'm like, okay, now here's a drawer. I'm going to go through all of the little tiny things in this drawer and I'm going to recycle or throw out. And, and then I just keep being in that zone and it's a sort of a meditative focused place for me, but I was, what? I can hear you love it. You're like, yeah. you're like here's a drawer. And in my mind, I would be like, here's a drawer. <laughs> I mean, and at my dad's, it was many, many, many drawers of many covers filled with many little tiny things and lots of like tools and lots of drill bits and many bullets um, mm. and guns. Sometimes I'd be like, dad, where do you want me to put this gun? Yeah. <laughs> um, but anyway, I was intrigued because I put, I would like, if there were things that I didn't know what they were, luckily my dad gave me, he, he trusted me. I was like, do you need to see everything? He's like, no, I trust you. But, um, sometimes I didn't know what things were, or I didn't know, like, this seems like it may have sentimental value or, you know, I just wasn't sure. So I would put them in a bag and put them on his bed for him to look through. And I was intrigued to see when he, like he had, I had to kind of orient him to that. Like he wanted to just look at the bag, like just look in it and be like, yeah, I want all that stuff or no, I don't want any of that stuff. But I had to be like, no, you have to take it out piece by piece and look at each one. (laughs) And it didn't, it hadn't occurred to me that that wasn't, didn't come naturally to people. Yeah. Yeah. Well, that's why I'm saying you have some tips for those of us who cannot go through the drawer. Like what are your secrets? Well, I mean, apparently part of it is maybe my natural inclination because of being a Virgo and being interested in the details. But I would say that if you can just, if you get overwhelmed by the whole closet or the whole room to say, okay, I'm just going to do this one drawer. I'm just going to go through all the little things in this one drawer and try not to think about the whole picture. Cause that, I mean, that, if I break it down, that's what I'm doing is I'm like, which is true about a lot of things like writing is like that too, that people, when they're like, oh, you wrote a whole book. And it's like, well, I mean, I wrote a thousand words at a time. I didn't write the whole book at once, but if you know, little by little, when you just sit down and do a little bit at a time, then that's really the secret to getting it all done eventually. If you just keep showing up. So are you doing little teeny bits of shadow work? Like what I'm thinking going back to your hometown, maybe I'm projecting onto this because 
I'm sensing that there's no disturbing content in here for you. <laughs> and I, oh. To me, I would be like, oh my God, here's a shadow. Here's a shadow. Here's another. So do you take that approach to, you know, you're not just oh. moving out the bullets and the tools. You're like, oh my gosh, this is bringing up this weird memory that makes me hate myself. or makes Oh, me interesting. Well, I know, like, I mean, I can feel feelings and often with clutter. I mean, if it's mine or my dad's, I mean, similar kind of feeling. I don't always like when the feelings move through, I can't always necessarily, you know, attribute them to something specific where I couldn't necessarily name them. But to me, knowing that this is the way that I interact with the world is that I really like knowing, okay, if I get rid of this stuff or if I sort it out or organize it or, you know, deal with it then that's going to move energy in and it's going to heal me in some way. That's, that brings me so much joy to know that. <laughs> so Aww. it's, it inspires me. It's like, oh, here's more stuff. Here's more stuff to get rid of. And like, I found my brother had a big base amp that he was storing there. And then he was like, no, I don't want that. And so then I gave it to one of my cousins and I just felt like, ah, oh, I should move that big thing out of here. Like it, I can feel the freedom of it. Even when I know, okay, yeah, there's probably going to be some feelings that I'm going to be processing through and some of them might be painful. I think I just also know that that means they're going to move and they're going to move through and that's going to create possibility and freedom and open up doors that I can't Uh, even imagine yet. So it's kind of a, I believe you, you you sound like what you're describing. I believe you. It sounds beautiful. (laughs) You feel it? <laughs> yeah, I'm feeling it. And I have that experience. It's just so sad how long it takes. I'm not even going to tell you what I just got rid of. Something humongous that I had for a year that my family was like, have you gotten rid of it yet? Oh. <laughs> no, I have not. It took me a whole year. And the entire time I, I do a thing where I freeze. It's very hard to explain, but it- there was something emotional that I didn't want to feel. And then when I, when I finally got rid of it, I was ready. So it wasn't as emotional as I thought it would be. And then of course I felt 10 million times lighter and I've had this experience many times before, but I just need to get into the mindset that I'm hearing you have, which is tap into the freedom. (laughs) Oh yeah. The anticipation of the freedom. Well, yeah. And also I, while you're saying that, I also can feel that I do also sense clutter as like, Oh, I want to get that out of here. Like I, and I, I have that. I also have that like urgency of getting it out of here, which is why I scheduled that whole trip to my dad's in the first place. Cause I was at his house. I was like, we need to get this stuff out of here. Mm-hmm. <laughs> yeah. It's probably really good to have a test in your life. If you're a per- <laughs> person like your dad or a person like myself, my mom is like that. That's why she's not allowed near my stuff. Oh, <laughs> right. Yeah. He, he was, he, it was a little uncomfortable for him knowing sometimes what was happening, but he also knew that it was, we needed to do this at this point. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Well, the self-love superpower kind of taps into all of these different things. And it's fun to see all of your work kind of come together like this in a way, all the different things you talk about and have it. To me, this is very much in alignment with what I was reading with the new age 2.0 stuff. Like you're talking about these concepts that 
I'm imagining this book was written before those articles. Is that right? Yeah, it was written before the pandemic. That's how just if you you or any of your listeners are an aspiring writer, this is how slow Llewellyn is, everyone. They <laughs> they are so slow, much slower than a, at least many other publishers. But anyway, yes, I finished it before the pandemic even began. Wow, is that timing? Perfect timing. You feel like that's perfect timing? I felt like it was way too long. <laughs> oh, well, that's because it's your book. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Well, to me, that's kind of a divine timing thing because we need this message right now. Oh, good. Well, I mean, it must be, right? It must be divine timing if that's when it's coming out. But it felt like a long time. And I was like, everything is changing. But then when I read it, read back through it, I was like, I feel good about it. And I felt like I already was maybe starting there. There was a lot that I had already shifted as far as not, um, you know, spiritually bypassing or uh, valuing positive feelings over challenging ones. I, I already was moving in that direction. Yeah, I guess that's what I'm trying to say. To me, this was like the same test, but you were already kind of shifting in this direction. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah. Finding more compassion for just the human experience that I'm in. Mm -hmm. Yeah. And what you brought up about Black Lives Matters and all of that is about compassion for other people too. And I think it's a two-way street. The more compassion we have for ourselves, the more we have for others and vice versa. Yeah. Yep. Yeah. And having compassion for our process of learning all of this stuff. Mm -hmm. you know, letting ourselves evolve and seeing, oh, I wasn't really that cognizant of these class divisions or white privilege. I wasn't as much. And just to be able to be honest about that and feel that and own that, I think is important. Instead of being like, oh, this makes me uncomfortable. I'm not going to look at it. I'm not going to shift the way I'm doing things because I don't want to admit that this hasn't been perfect. Yeah. Do you have a sense where that's taking you next as an author? No. (laughs) (laughs) A short answer. Um, No, not yet. I mean, I, I feel right now, like I'm kind of tuning into what I want my next project to be. I just finished an Oracle deck. I don't know when that'll come out, but yeah. So that'll be my third Oracle deck. I might, I'm thinking of doing another Oracle deck next, maybe. Mm. Do you want to tell us about the new one? Uh, no, not quite yet. It's top secret. Yeah. It's still the artist. I, I did finish the book that goes with it, but the artist is still doing the art. So it's got to stay in the cauldron for a little bit longer. Something to look forward to. Well, where can people follow you if they want to keep in touch and follow along. Thanks for asking. So you can uh, find me at testwhitehurst.com, which is where I have a lot of free content, free guided meditations and spells and rituals and inspiration. And I also am on Instagram at test 4444 on Twitter at test whitehurst on Facebook at test whitehurst author and on YouTube at test whitehurst. Oh, that's very thorough. No, this is what I do in my podcast every week. So I have practice. Hey, okay. All right. <laughs> and, and listen to the podcast. 
Yeah, that also my podcast is Magic Monday Podcast. Yay. Okay. And I can't ask you the same question. I always ask. So I'll ask you something different and you can give any answer you want. It can be very simple. Just something top of mind. I'm not wanting to overwhelm you with this, but dying to ask, where do we go from here? What do you mean? It's kind of open-ended. Oh, it's open-ended. Yes, but just based on this kind of shift that I think a lot of us experienced. Oh. But it could be a personal approach. You know, where do we go from here with maybe reaching a point where we're seeing the world in a new way and maybe ourselves in a new way? Yeah, okay. Well, the, the fundamental piece, I think, that helps anchor us and guide us is present moment awareness, being in your body, feeling the anchor of your weight on the earth or your chair, noticing as you're breathing, noticing your thoughts, and then also noticing the consciousness that is all around and underneath those thoughts that is who you really are. So coming back to that, the present moment, your awareness of silence and stillness and space and listening. And then you can also within that awareness, being in your body, being in the present moment, feeling the energy in your body in this moment, then you can also learn to send compassion and love to yourself, check in, be kind, say kind things to yourself. Notice when you're not saying kind things to yourself and lovingly shift that, like that kind of learning to get into the gap and doing that through regular meditation and just saying, Oh, now I'm breathing in. Now I'm breathing out. There's the sky. Let me listen. What is that feeling? Kind of getting into that habit of bringing yourself back again and again. And then all that wisdom, intuition, your internal guidance system, it's all there for you. When you get into that habit, you are so gifted. I am so blown away. I was worried about asking that because I didn't want to overwhelm you. You take a pause and then you just gave us this whole like channeled sermon. (laughs) It was so beautiful. That's so nice. Thank you. Thank you so much for coming on the show, Tess. It was a delight, Joanna. Thank you for having me. That's it, my friends. I hope you enjoyed this interview and that life is treating you well. Happy holidays. I've got quite a few interviews coming your way throughout the holidays. So stay tuned for that. And until we meet again, much love to you. Peace.